Thank you so much for hitting play today. Listen, you could have pushed play on any number of whatevers. My friend, David Thibodeau, just a little side segue here. He is in a new documentary series on Netflix called Waco. We had him on a while back. I watched it. Didn't love it. David did great, by the way. Waco is just a hard thing for me still. So if you have something else to look at or watch, check it out. It's It was pretty awesome. Waco was pretty amazing. They did a good job. David did great, as I said. Let me tell you, I am excited to sit with her. We booked her like it feels like eons ago, but we're finally getting to walk in her shoes today. She has an amazing book out, and we're going to talk about that. Here's the question that I want to lead off today's show with, and that's this. You're at a restaurant, bustling tables. You've had a great meal. Maybe it's that loving chicken fried steak. Mm, Eggs made just the way you wanted. They were scrambled perfectly. Hash brown, crispy like always. Bacon simmering. Still sipping that last cup of hazelnut coffee. That's right. Hazelnut coffee is the only way to go, by the way. And you're getting ready to leave and and the check comes and you have that perplexing moment. I'm going to pay the bill, but how much do I tip? Hmm. Let's put a pin in that as my mom would say and let's come back to that. Welcome my guest today. Barbara, Barbara, how are you today? Hi, Neil. I'm doing great. I'm excited to chat with you. What an intro, right? What a what a thing to set the table. Oh, look what we did there and set the stage for your entrance. Nice. <laughs> the jokes may get better. Just full disclosure. That's okay. I'm really good at laughing at things that aren't funny. No. Oh! <laughs> Wow. Right back. See, you have to give it back. Well, Barbara, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really excited that you're here today. I'm excited to, again, talk about your book, but really, truly is this whole tipping situation. And I told you this kind of preliminary and even in the green room, I've struggled on so many levels on tipping. And I'm going to just tell you right out of the gate and then we'll get more into your stuff. There have been moments I have not tipped. And I'll tell you why more in that in a moment. But I'm excited again that you're here today. Before we get too far, we got to answer this Amazing question. Now, you said you've been on 47. Are we 48 or are we 47 still shows? I think you're 47. Okay, so we're 47. We're not 50. I was kind of hoping we'd be big 50. It's fine. So 47 shows now, which, by the way, I applaud you. That's that's a lot of guesting. What style of shoe do you love to wear? Ooh, that's a great question. I like a, I like a sneaker these days, like a black, black sneaker is usually what I'm rocking these days. Most people who meet me today as somebody who owns and operates a women-owned construction company in Manhattan. So I try to wear shoes that can handle a job site, but that also look good at a client meeting. And then when you spent a decade in six-inch pleasers, you really go for comfort whenever you have the option. That's awesome. Okay. And so now I know, you know, New York fashion, Manhattan, I would imagine. I've never been out to New York, by the way. It is on the list. So New York fashion, Manhattan, we got to have a style. I mean, there's got to be a brand name. Who are we rocking? I mean, are these shoes just plain jeans or do they have like a Nike swoosh on them? No, like I said, like after decades of six, seven inch heels, you go for comfort. Now I think they're like borderline orthopedic. They're called bionics. They have like arch support. No, it's it's New York fashion runs the gamut. You have, <laughs> you have all different sorts of aesthetics. And I'd say my current aesthetic is like, I don't know, Scandinavian horse jockey. That's my current aesthetic. (laughs) Nice. 
No, I hear, I hear you. The arches are crying if you have to put on a stiletto. That's not happening anymore. No more. No. Yeah, you're done no. with that. I'm done with that. You said kind of your intro of, of the of the shoes, which, by the way, we always ask that because we got to know what shoes we're in. Obviously, other people's shoes. People always like, why do you ask the shoe question? It's so bizarre. Well, I think it's a really great question because over the course of my career, it's went from non-slip shoes that you can wear in a restaurant to seven-inch stilettos that you can wear on a pole and on a stage to steel-toed construction boots. And so I have a lot of those shoe questions are really tied to my identity, who I've been over the past 20, 30 years. You know, Forrest Gump said it best, I've worn lots of shoes. As weird as that line is, I, I really embrace it because I too have had a number of jobs and in those jobs, much like yourself, I've had to wear different footwear. And so we're in your pair today of shoes. You mentioned something that I maybe just want to kind of have some silliness and then we'll move on to something more serious. You mentioned that you were wearing these pleaser shoes I, and I'm messing that up. Tell me more about that and why, why were you wearing them? I mean, maybe there's an obvious reason and then you said something about a pole and maybe again, there's obvious reasons to that, but help us with that. Yeah. Yeah, so when most people meet me today, they do know me as somebody who does construction. But what they don't know is I spent 20 years working in the service industry. And over the course of that 20 years, I was a bartender, a go-go dancer, a pole dancer, a stripper, a fetish performer, a sideshow showgirl, a circus performer, a flair bartender, a coyote, a pole dancer, a cater waiter, you name it. If it involved tips, I did it. And I did it all over the country. Those shoes really run the gamut from being really comfortable comfortable and utilitarian to really aesthetically pleasing. <laughs> aesthetically pleasing, those are the ones that are the pleasers. So that's a it's a brand, a type of shoe that is typically found in a club atmosphere. Full disclosure, I have never been in a strip club. I've been by one, like on the outside. We have one in town and I've been to Vegas and I've even been to Fremont Street where they're doing God knows what down there. I've been at a bar, but I've never been in a strip club. I got to be honest, when again, when we were preliminarily talking, I thought, okay, I got to ask this and I have a young daughter, so, but I just got to ask from a dad, why would you get into that lifestyle of, forgive me for stripping, if that's not the right vernacular there? Yeah, I mean, I think that one, you know, your question evokes a little bit of judgment. I think that's part of the zeitgeist of our culture. You know, when you're growing up, you're taught don't become a garbage man and don't become a stripper. Those positions are moral and ambition failures. The reality is, is that there should be no shame in how anyone makes a living. Sex and service industry is the second largest industry in the United States. It's a billion, 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 multi-billion dollar industry. You're probably the only person I've ever met who's never been in a strip club. And so I feel like one, I want to, I kind of want to suck the shame out of that and say that there's no shame in what people do for a living Two, how I got involved. There's a few different entry stories for me. I remember this is in the opening of the book. There was a radio DJ that was giving away tickets for a pink concert person who showed up in the most pink thongs in the parking lot would win front row tickets to the pink concert. At the time I was working a bunch of jobs, but one of my jobs was at a JC Penney's. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to go to like the 99 cent underwear bin and buy all of the pink thongs I can find and then put them all on and waddle to my win, which was contest was in the parking lot of the mall. And so I was like, oh my God, I'm a shoe in for this. I was 16 at the time. So I show up in like 34 pink thongs, which I wish I had put on in the order of sizing, but I did not. Um, and so I show up at the parking lot and the DJs were like, oh, well, we have to, we have to count them 
in order to be sure that you're the winner. And so I have these older men in this van, in this parking lot of this mall, asking a 16-year-old girl to take their underwear off in the parking lot. And I won. I have a lot of feelings about that situation now, but I remember a few of the security guards at the JCPenney's coming up to me afterwards. And they're like, if you do that same thing at, at a party that we're hosting for the weekend, I'll give you 300 bucks plus tips. And I was like, sold. And so, I mean, that's kind of like where... It started, it was this innocent young girl trying to get some concert tickets to have a good time. How that manifested was it took a few more years. I worked in the service industry, waiting tables, bartending, doing a couple of bunch of other jobs for tips. Ultimately, I really liked to dance. I really liked to entertain. I really liked the beautiful costumes and putting on the makeup. I love the camaraderie of the girls that I worked with. I liked being able to bring up the energy of an establishment with my own energy. People don't realize this, but there's a lot of skill to this job. You are a salesperson. You are rocking time management. You are a conversationalist. There's so many subtle skills that you have in order to work in a service-based establishment. I was good at all of them. There's a real art to it. Yeah, just to help. I would never want to judge or make somebody feel judged by any means. So if, if you felt that way, that was not coming from this side. Past guest, Rebecca Bender, who is big in the sex trade and getting girls out of that. And so maybe that's a little bit of a, a tender moment for me. Barbara, we just met and I would never want somebody to get lured into that and then have that happen to them. Well, I think it's really important to separate sex trafficking from sex work. Those are two very, very different industries. If you can even call sex trafficking an industry, it's, it's a crime. And it's, it is typically underaged people. Whereas whenever I was at a club atmosphere, I was an adult and I knew what I was getting myself into. And I was choosing that. That was, that was a work choice. I think people often conflate those two industries and really they don't really belong on the same table of the same conversation, in my opinion. Yeah. And see, this is what I love is we can flush that out. We can have that dialogue and it's okay. Yeah. Because you have your thought. I have mine. It, it doesn't matter. We're having a, an, a, on a conversation. And to me, that's what it's about. All right. So silly question, as I mentioned, kind of in the green room, full disclosure, I told a couple of folks who were coming on, I told them a little bit of your background and somebody did ask. So we have to settle this. I know it's a little, maybe a little silliness here, but you had a stage name. Did you have a stage name or did you go by, by Barbara? What, what was that? No, I don't think my parents named me <laughs> with the idea that I'd be working in a club environment. So no, I did not use Barbara. Also, it's, I think it's important to remember that when you're working at a, a club, privacy is important, boundaries are important, and also fantasy is important. To use all of those things, whether it's fantasy or privacy, a, a pen name, pseudonym is is important part of that. And so my stage name was Roxy, which again, very cliche, but when you're young, it's just, it was the first one that came up. So once you name yourself, you can't ever go away from Roxy then? can. There's no hard oh, and fast rules. You can switch it at any time you want See, to. See, I don't know because I don't know. I've never been to one. I don't know. So back to this. Let's go back to my kind of intro kind of onset, my my breakfast story that I was telling, which if I'm having breakfast, 90% of the time it's chicken fried steak. I don't care where I am. It's like I don't even look at the menu except to say to the waitress when she comes, hey, you guys have chicken fried steak? As soon as she says yes, she might like zoom us, zoom by us and then onto another table. I'm like, okay, I don't need to look anymore. I know what I'm having. The check comes. I'm very perplexed. Sit in the booth with me, if you will. What do I do? What do I tip? Let's say my meal is... Uh, let's say 20, 25 bucks. That seems about reasonable for breakfast for my wife and I. So my wife's there too, because it'd be weird if we were having breakfast, just you and I. <laughs> 
I don't think that'd be weird. But so we're having breakfast. We finished. We had a great conversation. Like hopefully we're having right now. Now what do we do? I'm going to pay, by the way, because I invited you. So I'm going to pay. So you don't have to worry about paying. What do we do next in your mind? In my mind, a lot of people don't understand the service industry and why tipping is important part of that process. When you are getting a service. And oftentimes it's a luxury. Eating out is a luxury. Getting someone else to make your coffee is a luxury. Going to a club is a luxury. Going to a bar and having somebody make you a craft cocktail, that's a luxury. And if, if you can't afford that luxury and you can't afford to tip, then by all means, there's other avenues to have fun. You can have a picnic, you can have a potluck, you can cook at home, you can have a put a bar in your garage. So when you are out at a service-based establishment, it's important to remember the fact that you're getting a subjective experience you're the only person who got your type of service. You're the only person who can judge how that service went. And that's why in this industry, there is this two-part compensation where there's sub-minimum wage, which oftentimes people don't realize is $2.13. That's what they're getting paid from their employer. And then there's the subjective portion of their wages, which is the tip. It's a part of their employment contract that they will be making tips. The thing I always like to remind people is that you have to be an educated consumer in any industry that you're in. Whether you're going to, you know, you said you're a person of faith, whether you're going to church, you know what to do when that basket comes around. You know what to do when you're going to a body shop and having a conversation with somebody about a car. You have to be an educated consumer in every industry in this country, whether you're advocating for your health care or you're just at a bar or restaurant and learning how to tip. And so it's important that as you get older and maybe as you get more money and you're able to have more and more luxury experiences that you are aware of the conditions of that employment so that you can tip appropriately. And so for me, if a bill is 25 bucks and I wasn't spit on, stabbed or sued during my dining experience, I'm given 25%. And I can tell you why. $2.13 is the sub-minimum wage. It's laughable. Oftentimes, people in the service industry don't even get a paycheck because it's eaten away in taxes. The money you are giving them is the only money that they are seeing. I'm passionate about it because I did it for 20 years and I saw how hard people struggled. As I started to write the book and prepare for the book, I did a lot of research on the economics of the industry. And the people who work in restaurants, bars, and clubs on tips age into the most economically disadvantaged population in our country, twice as likely to experience poverty, twice as likely to experience homelessness. These are people who oftentimes don't track their income, so they don't know how to claim their income appropriately, which means that they are missing out on one of the biggest safety nets that our country has to offer, which is Social Security. In 2020, the average Social Security payout was less than $20,000. And if you can't imagine living off of less than $20,000, then keep in mind the fact that these people aren't even claiming full income. They're going to be expected to live on half of that. So it's terrifying from a numbers perspective. When you look at the minimum wage as a, as a country, our minimum wage has been adjusted multiple times. The sub-minimum wage for tipped workers, which by the way, is the only industry that has a separate sub-minimum wage has not been adjusted since the 60s. They're working against this uphill battle of not only having improper wages, but they also don't have health insurance. They don't have paid time off. They don't have a 401k. They don't have many of the benefits the typical nine to fivers enjoy and the safety nets that are in place for them. At the same time, when you go home from a job, what you're dealing with are your net numbers. Taxes have been taken out. All of this stuff has been taken out. So you're paying for groceries with net numbers. People who work in the tipped industry, that's their gross. 
there's been no deductions. And so when they're operating in a world where people are making considerations, they're kind of operating off of funky math. It's not their math. It's everyone else's math. That's why I'm given 25%. So here's where I'm at. I've been on cruises. I've been in obviously bars. I've been in haircut places. I've been in restaurants. So we'll go back to my restaurant situation. If it's really good service, they'll do 20%. Top tier, he or she who's waited on us. Now, I have had had bad service because we all have, I think on some level. I might do 10%, which I now feel terrible. There have been times I have even given zero if it's been really bad. For the record, that has been very rare that it's been really bad. Your thoughts on that? My thoughts on that. I feel some judgment coming (laughs) this way, by the way. No, there's no judgment. There's there's no judgment. Like I said at the onset, is every industry requires education about how to operate within that industry. If you're going to a bar for the first time, I can tell if you're a first timer because you're going to order something crazy like a vodka diet coke. That's how I'm going to know that you need a little guidance. I don't drink vodka, Diet Coke. (laughs) I might drink whiskey and Dr. Pepper, but come on. Come on. When I hear people say I've tipped zero or I've tipped 10%, that just tells me that we need a conversation. There's some things that you're probably unaware of. You're unaware of the fact that that waitress has to tip out a busboy and that she has to come out of pocket on every single table, a portion of what she makes in tips. And so when you're not tipping, you don't realize that not only is she getting paid zero, but she's getting paid less than zero. You would never force somebody to work for free because that's very problematic. We have a history in this country of forcing people to work for free. We have terms for that and that's not acceptable and no one wants to be operating around that. To me, it just shows that you have to, you have to teach people like, oh, if you're, if you've never worked in the industry, then you don't know that they have to tip out a busboy, that they have to tip out the bar. Let's say we got mimosas and the waitress brought over mimosas. They have to tip that bartender out at the end of their ship. And so if we're not tipping or we're tipping 10%, likely that person is making less than zero. They're having to pay to come to work. And that's just, that's a hard thing for somebody who's already in a lower income bracket to be able to handle. And so I think usually it's, we can clear up that misconception pretty quickly. For me, I have a range of 15 to 25%. We're not saying that people have to give 25% if you're getting bad and terrible service, but you also have to be informed, but also an engaged consumer. So if you're getting bad service from the onset, you need to have a conversation with your person and say, hey, this isn't good going well? How can you make this better? How can we turn this experience around? Because I want to feel good about this. So, and that's the part of engagement. Like you can't just sit there and be like, I'm having a terrible time and do nothing. That's the same thing. Like if somebody brought a car to your body shop and they left with more dents than they came in with, you wouldn't stand for that. You'd have the conversation. You would get educated on why that happened and maybe your expectations and their expectations. And so the same thing is with this industry. If you're having a terrible service experience, you don't just have to shut up and tip 25%. No, the range is typically, what I like to say, is between 15 and 25. 15 shows that you're displeased and that you're going to make sure that they don't have to come out of pocket for it, but you're definitely not rewarding them. And then 25 is like, hey, you showed up. You were entertaining. You had time management on your side. I'm leaving feeling good knowing that I don't have to go home and do my dishes. and I don't have to clean up after myself and whatever sticky mess I left, that's on you. I think that's so powerful. That's why I was very enamored to have you on. And I think others maybe would echo this. When I surveyed the room, I say, hey, you know, what do you guys know about tipping? I kind of like read the room. What's the interest level going to be? People were excited about, wait, she's talking about tipping? Like, why do we need to talk about that? And I asked them that very question. I said, well, do you tip? They go, well, yeah, of course I do. I'm like, great, how much? That's when they got...
<laughs> but that's when crickets kind of came in, truly. And I thought to myself, well, if I'm feeling this way and my coworkers and friends and people I trust and my survey room, if you will, are feeling this way, I got to think other people nationally, internationally even, because we have international presence, are feeling this way as well. I think you're right. Why do you think tipping is so hard for folks? I guess is my, my ultimate question. A lot of people don't realize the fact that tipping has been around in the U.S. for hundreds of years. It popularized after slavery ended. Post-slavery, employers wanted to continue to profit off the backs of their black, brown, uneducated minority workers. Yes, it started with a really problematic trend, but at the same time, there were two positions that were tipped positions. One was in a restaurant and the other was in railroads. So those were both tipped positions. And I like to ask people, when is the last time you had a really great time with a railroad worker? Never. Never. Um, well, actually, I, I did, truly, if you wanted to answer to that. Fifth grade, we rode the Amtrak train from my little elementary school to San Juan Capistrano. I was on an Amtrak train. First mm -hmm. time I ever got the older girl's hand, by the way. So it was very monumental for me. But I did not tip the train worker. I should have because I had such a marvelous time holding yeah. this girl's hand. Who was not a worker. <laughs> probably also so. He probably was playing a character. Who knows? My point is that people assume that it is these evil employers of these businesses that are not paying their workers and that you then have to suffer the consequences of paying the worker because this terrible employer will not pay their worker. And it's like, that is not what's happening here. First of all, 90% of bars, clubs, and restaurants are owned by mom and pop industries. These are small business owners that operate off of less than 10% margins. These are really tough industries to run. And the reason that tipping is allowed by the government is because the government recognizes all of the intangibles that this industry brings forward. I'm, I'm a real estate investor. I'm also a contractor and a business owner. And so one of the things that I know is that these service industry establishments, whether it's beauty and body services, bars and restaurants and clubs, transportation services, they prop up the economy and the communities of where we live. They are the reason that our real estate valuations hold value. They are the reasons that our economies and our communities run even in general. There's so many intangibles. And so when you are tipping, you and the employer are coming to this agreement together to say like, hey, I'm going to subsidize part of your wages because if I don't, then you're going to have to mark up this menu to a place where I'm not going to be able to afford the food and, and beverages or the services that I so enjoy. And you'll have to mark those up even more because you're going to have to pay taxes on them. You're going to have to hire an HR representative. You're going to have to pay more employer taxes. You're going to have to provide benefits. You're going to have to set up compliance for a 401k. You're going to have to do all of these things that cost a lot more. And I'm going to end up with a $60 burger. The naysayers are always like, well, what about in Europe? What about in Australia? What about these two other places where there's not tipping? And it's like, well, they have different rules. They have totally different standards as far as how those businesses are run and what the requirements are. And so that's just not, that's not an apples to apples comparison. And when you were talking about global, tipping is a global practice. Over one third of countries have a tipping percentage of over 10%. So it's not just like the US, like Canada, Mexico, all so many countries have a tipping culture. It's, it's a global practice. And so people are always like, oh, we're the only place that does that. So my two biggest misconceptions are one, that it's evil business owners not wanting to pay their employees, which it's not, that's not the case. And I'm not even here to advocate for business owners. I'm just here to advocate for the workers. And two, that it's only happening here in the US. And both of those things are just, just false.
else. But let's face it, you being in the New York area, I would imagine you've been to Madison Square Garden. I hope you've been to Madison Square Garden. I was just Garden, there. Right? I saw Elton John in concert. It was phenomenal. Oh my gosh. So amazing. I mean, I would love to go just to the garden to watch a Knicks game. I'm not even a Knicks fan, but it is the basketball mecca. But in that arena, Elton John says, hey, hey, people. I can't do really an Elton. That's that was my good. best Elton. Right before he sings Yellow Brick Road, he stops for a second and he says, Hey, people, you got to meet my girl Barbara here. Barbara, get up here. Now he sounds like he's from the Bronx. <laughs> but he stops the show, Barbara, and he brings you up on stage. What an amazing opportunity. First off, he you know introduces you. You're wearing your your finest whatever you wore for the concert. Orthopedic shoes. By the way, hopefully the <laughs> orthopedic shoes made it, the, the dress code. <laughs> and everybody's mocking you the next day in page six. You're there and he gives you his microphone as shiny and sparkly and bedazzled as it is. And he says, Barbara, tell people why they need to care about the service industry. What do you say in that moment? I consider the service industry to be a keystone industry. It supports our economies and our communities. And I'm scared of what a world looks like without this. For a lot of people, we are experiencing an epidemic of loneliness post-COVID. During COVID, we saw just what it was like as a world that didn't have hairstylists and bartenders and taxi drivers. And it was really, really sad. And so when you're going to a service-based establishment, that is sometimes the only smile somebody's getting in a day. That is the only, I'm so glad you're here, that somebody who's suffering from depression is going to receive. It's a place where the cooking, the cleaning, the dishes is not your own, where that mom who's going to pull out her hair finds a little bit of reprieve. This industry is important in so many ways. In order for us to do our part, we have got to take care of the people who lift these communities and these industries up. And that involves... A very small token of generosity based on our experience. These workers love to know that there is no cap how much they can earn. They're very comfortable with the risk versus reward. And you go into this industry knowing that occasionally you're going to get zero tip. You know that going into it. And you know that going into it, that there's going to be some 10 percenters, some 15 percenters, and you are playing the game of numbers. These workers are aware that their performance is up for judgment. They, they know that. But I think they also hope that everyone who's coming in understands the economics behind what their lives look like. And often it's a life without safety nets. It's a life without paid time off. The average American gets 20 paid days off a year with holidays. How much happier and healthier are you as a human because you get practically a month off paid each year? Most people, they get like two weeks plus seven holidays. People in this industry do not have paid time off, regardless of whether or not your state mandates it. Often they're burnt out, they're fried, they don't have a safety net or recourse to be able to take a day off. And so I just hope that when people go out to these establishments and they're supporting, they're supporting these businesses, like we all are supposed to be doing, supporting our local businesses, that we're also taking care of the people that are a part of those local businesses. By the way, seating capacity, if it's accurate, I don't, so I don't know if this is basketball or a concert, but 20,789 people just heard that message. And I hope they heard you. So Clay Walker, I know you're a big Clay Walker fan. You're huge. Been to every show that he has, Zippo lighter in hand, because you know Clay Walker. Right? I have Clay Walker tattooed on my ass. That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Never heard of him, right? <laughs> Never. So he's a country singer. You might want to look into him, especially this song. It's called The Chain of Love. Um, I can't play it, unfortunately, but you can Google it later. It kind of tells this story about this woman who has her car break down on the side of the road, kind of middle of nowhere. Guy comes middle of the night, fixes her tire, gets her on her way. She tries to pay him. 
And he says, you know, you don't owe me a thing, goes into the lyrics, basically pay it forward kind of thing. So she's a few, this is the part I wanted to key you in on is she's a few miles down the road. She's this, this woman who was stranded. Now she's not. So she's a few miles down the road. She stops into the small cafe to grab a bite to eat. When she gets in there, she notices immediately a waitress smiling so sweet. Sorry, I get a little choked up. I forgot about this song, so you helped me remind me of this song. She notices a waitress smiling so sweet. She's eight months along, and she's dead on her feet. She probably will never know the story. She said the waitress went to get change from a $100 bill, and the lady, again, that was stranded, slips out the back with a note on a napkin that says, that brings the waitress to tears. She says, you don't owe me a thing. I've been there too. Someone once helped me out the way that I'm helping you. If you really want to pay me back, here's what you do. Don't let the chain of love end with you. So fast forward that night as she's getting into bed from work, the waitress climbs into bed and she's thinking about the money and the lady's note. I really didn't expect to get so emotional over this song. And she said, as she sees her husband sleeping there, she softly whispers, everything will be all right. I love you, Joe. Now, Joe, you don't know the first part of that. Joe's the guy that stopped to help the lady in the Porsche. As he came up to her, as a gentleman would, he introduces himself. Hi, ma'am. How can I help? My name is Joe. That's really touching. And I think you're speaking to something we're all connected. We are our brothers and sisters keepers. And these are people in our community who end up in really tough positions financially. When we're there with them, we need to be with them and really see them for their humanity and see them for all the all the things that they're bringing, the gifts that they're bringing to the, to the world. But the flip side of that coin is there are people out there, and I truly believe this, that hate being generous. I've worked for this. I've earned this. The word self-made, I've heard quite often thrown around in circles. I don't get it. I don't understand it. People have said, hey, I'm self-made. Question over here in the back. How are you self-made? Somebody poured into you. I don't believe there's truly, and this is my little soapbox, I don't believe anybody is self-made. I don't believe that. I think that is the biggest crock you've ever been sold in your life. If you believe that, there's an oceanfront property in Arizona, George Strait song, by the way, that I'll sell you. Super cheap. Barbara will help us with that. That whole idea that I'm self-made, I've made this, I don't have to be generous, this is my money, I've made it, you're serving me. Entitlement, this whole pretentious, I love that word, pretentious attitude. Did you ever encounter that in your spaces that you were involved in? And if so, maybe speak to that and how you counteracted that. My policy was be so good they can't ignore you. Whenever I was giving service, it was to the point where there's no way you're going to feel good about walking out of this situation unless you leave a really good tip. There's no way because I was that good. I was that caring. I was that attentive. I was that engaged. My motto has always just been be so good they can't ignore you. And obviously that's very dependent on where you're working and the structure of the place and the capacity that you have as an individual. That was always my way. And yeah, there's going to be people, there's always going to be people who, you know, when a law is not there forcing people to tip, they're not, they're not going to, you know, my belief, I'm not, I'm not a person of faith and generosity is very important to me. Charity is very important to me. Charity is something to me that builds an abundance mindset. So if you're somebody who wants to create abundance in your life, you have to do that by giving. Otherwise, no matter how much money you have, you're going to be stuck in a scarcity mindset. And I think that unfortunately, there's nothing you can do about that other than remind people, take a beat from your page and try to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. 
I know you said you're not a person of faith, so I'm not necessarily going to give you Bible <laughs> trivia now. So that seems like that may be off the table. But I do want to bring about a story that actually is pretty famous in some circles. And that's the story where, where Jesus is in the synagogue. That's the Jewish temple place for those that are not maybe faith people. He sees this woman who, who is a widow. There's indications that she is for her appearance and whatnot. And she gives two pennies, basically two less than what we would consider a penny, basically two of those. It's called the widow's mite. And it gets thrown into this like brass kind of, if you think of like a trumpet coming up out of the ground, kind of the bell of the trumpet. And it's in this synagogue, as I said. So when it makes it into the bell of the catcher, it makes this kind of ting sound. We're all familiar with that ting, 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 ting. But it doesn't make a very loud sound. It's like almost like a pebble, like ting, and that's it. Well, what the Pharisees would do, that's the religious like know-it-alls, the kind of like we talk about judgment. Those were the guys that are judging everybody, like you're doing that wrong. They're the wrong police, if you will. And this guy comes in and he's, you know, throws in his money. And of course, it is a lot. I mean, it's like a slot machine at a Vegas casino. I mean, it's like ching, 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 ching. I mean, just making this ruckus. And Jesus points out the widow and says, says she did it right and all the disciples are like what um Jesus, not to call you wrong, but um, did you see what he gave and what she gave? And he says she gave out of all that she had, he gave out of his excess. I think people have that that mindset still, that's why I bring that story up, is, oh, I'm going to give out of my excess because I'm going to look like amazing. I'm going to look like this. Oh, look at me. I'm going to I'm gonna give this $1,000. I mean, you hear celebrities all the time going to a restaurant, giving somebody a $1,000 tip, and it makes news and Twitter and all that other stuff. But it's like, did you really give to give with a heart of giving back to that generosity? Or did you give to get a Twitter feed and a Twitter viral photo? What do you think on that? <laughs> I think... I'll take all of that. I think there's a really, there's a lot of vitriol around tipping right now with platforms. You, for instance, have a platform. Those, those celebrities have a platform. Anything you can do to kind of create that charitable and giving mindset is what the world needs at the same time to be teaching people. Like I was saying, you have to teach people who are, if you've never had money and now you're going to luxury services for the first time, you're probably going to encounter some of those people that you're talking about who are like, this is my hard earned money. Why am I going to just give this away? And it's okay, well, we have to, we have to educate you on this industry. This is an industry that when you have, you enter these, these luxury services, but you have to act accordingly and you have to tip within a range. And it's a, it's a societal custom. It's like returning the grocery cart to the bin when you're in a parking lot. Wait, nobody does that. What? Oh my gosh, I always return my my cart to the to the bin. To me, it's like that's that's the sign of humanity. Do you pick up after your dog when nobody's looking? Do you tip when nobody's watching? Do you return the bin when nobody's watching? Like those are the moments when our humanity is tested. Are we going to be responsible to the society that we're a part of? But why write the book? It's an epidemic. Tipping is an epidemic. I don't want to ever see anyone marginalized. I don't want to see anybody ever taken advantage of. I work really hard on being kind. It's it's hard. I'm not gonna be honest. I'm not perfect. I'm not I'm not Jesus. But it is really hard sometimes to the way people treat me and the way people talk to me. I'm like, I would never I would never say some of the things that people have said to me. You mentioned the book, you mentioned that it's this epidemic, it's it's almost like COVID. It's bad. Bad. And so why write the book? I wanna ask that. And then the second part of that is I wanna say, what was the hardest part about writing the book? So two-part question there. I'll, I'll take the second part first. The hardest part for me about writing the book was knowing that I couldn't speak to everybody. And I felt like if I couldn't speak to anyone, how did I choose who to speak to? When you have a platform or you have a message, you have to speak to somebody or you speak to no one. I can't teach people to budget their way out of poverty. That's not possible. 
It's not possible to teach people to budget their way out of poverty. You can't just bootstrap yourself out of generational poverty. Not possible. I had to realize that while maybe I couldn't speak to all of those people, I could write the book that I wish I had had at 20. I could potentially help a few people. And that was enough for me. So in 2016, I started deep diving the world of personal finance. In 2013, when I first moved to New York, I spent a few months working on Wall Street. I worked for a really unregulated market. And so it was part trading floor, part independent sales organization, selling usurious loan products. It was the really ugly side of financial services. And so seeing those predatory practices and then kind of doing a deep dive on the world of personal finance, I realized that this huge umbrella of personal finance advice, of financial services, not only ignoring this sector of over 5.5 million people, but the only time these people were actually interacting with anyone in the personal finance space, it was in a very predatory way. Payday loans with high margins. To me, I was just like, this is so problematic. The people who are faring the worst financially are either being excluded from personal finance advice or being preyed upon by financial services. My response was, I don't have a platform. I can't talk to lobbyists or legislators. I can't, I, I don't have the language, the connections or the resources to be able to do that. But what I can do is teach people how to take traditional personal finance advice, adapt it for people who are working in these environments and working with tips and help them educate themselves and to control what they can control. I work for, like I said, I've worked part in service industry, part in construction. And in construction, there's this organization called OSHA and OSHA when they came about, their whole goal was we train the workforce and we will change the number of injuries and workplace deaths. And that's what they did. They educated the workforce and they changed the industry from within. And that was my, that's my goal. If I can educate the workers on the basics of personal finance, then I can change the industry from within. And so I wanted to break up this really good financial advice that a lot of people with means get access to and adapt it in a way that would be really relatable and understandable. In the world of personal finance, there's so much jargon is almost meant to gatekeep people out of, oh, I can't, I can't build wealth because I don't understand this. And it also enables people who are predatory financial advisors to be like, oh, don't worry about this. It's complicated. I'll handle it for you. Hand me your money. No, I mean, like, I'm just not here for that. Part of my, my journey has been building wealth in a very DIY way where it's been like slowly, steadily, really unsexy financial products like index funds. No one builds wealth with lottery tickets. And unfortunately in this industry, you kind of don't have any hope that you can do it yourself. And so you believe that your only way out is through the lottery. And that's really sad. Take a step back and you realize like, actually you build wealth very slowly and very deliberately. And it's through $50 a week. It's through very unsexy ways. I felt like I could deliver that message in a way that was still kind of sexy. <laughs> And still kind of fun. And, you know, anyone who picks up my book, it's it's filled with curse words. But that's because that's the language of the industry. And I wanted to connect with people in a way that they're like, you know what? She gets it. She's been there. She has screwed herself over many times. I have truly tested the limits of the credit system. I have done some really stupid things. And to be able to know that I can claw my way out of those, those mistakes and people can learn from this so that they don't have to make these same mistakes. My favorite chapter in my book is, an, is the investing chapter because the entire chapter is an analogy to being at the bar. 
So if you understand what it's like to be at a bar, by the end of this chapter, you will understand how to invest. I always say that investing and wine are really similar in that like you can get way into wine. You can get super, super deep into wine. You can talk about notes and tannins and regions and age and body and mouthfeel. And like you can get so in the weeds with all the jargon about wine. You don't need to, to have a great wine experience. You need to know a little bit about what you like and your tolerance and you can have a great wine experience in the same is true for investing. You can get so deep in the world of investing, Forex and bell curves and PE ratios and all this nonsense. Like you don't need to do that unless you want to. You can get in and out knowing a little bit about what you like and your risk tolerance, hit it, set it, forget it and have a great investing experience. And that's, and that's what I want to do is give people hope and know that it's possible for them. So first off, I'm excited that you wrote it. I, as I said, I think it's, it's, it's a conversation that I've again, wanted to have, but never had an opportunity to have. And so I'm so glad we got to connect. Truly. I'm a believer. I, I think you have, have swayed me into changing my perception of how I've viewed tipping. Truly. That's great. That's what this is all about. I wrote it for these people because I was never going to get to this platform level. I had to go kind of grassroots. I kind of had to go, go where my people were. And to me, I, I think that's what's all about. It also, in, in your retelling of the book, and by the way, I don't know if you noticed, but you got a little emotional. There is emotion tied to money. I had a lady on a while back who talked about you spend money during your emotional cycle that girls have. And I was like, wow, I never even thought I'd have that conversation. But she talked about that as well, that, you know, money during that cycle period can be a little dicey for women sometimes. So any of it. Money is so psychological, so emotional. I think one of the things that surprised me most when I was doing research on money is our behaviors around money are learned by the age of seven. They're cemented by the age of seven. So whatever our first money memories are or how we saw our parents reacting or our grandparents reacting about money is often the ideas that we as adults keep around money. And sometimes that puts us, oftentimes that puts us into that scarcity mindset. You could be somebody who's avoidant. Oh, maybe I don't check into my bank account. I don't open my mail. Maybe I have some hoarding. All of those are based around scarcity mindset. It's a mindset you have to work on diligently. For me, in the book, it was like nine of my chapters are all about really tactical things. But I have a chapter that's about mindset because I think our mindset is so important. How we show up to our relationship with money is just as important as the math part. And yeah, I get super passionate about it. To me, this is your future. It's your livelihood. These people need to be told and reinforced that you're deserving of a golden retirement, just like anyone in any industry. You don't deserve to suffer and scrape by. And if you if you believe that, then you're not going to be striving for more. And so we have to change our relationship with money. We have to change our beliefs about ourselves, about our industry, and know that this industry, you can achieve financial independence. You can achieve financial freedom. You can retire in these industries. And one of the reasons people who earn six figures, they have to save for a six-figure retirement. They have to work that much harder because their lifestyle is that much bigger. But if you're a lower middle-income worker, you only have to save and invest for a lower middle-income retirement. So it is just as achievable for you as it is for somebody who's earning six figures. Absolutely. Again, I think that's the power of what you're doing. Well, where can folks get the book? Where can they get their hands on it? 
Yeah. So the book is called Tipped and you can, uh, there's also a subtitle, which is it's the life-changing guide to financial freedom for waitresses, bartenders, strippers, and all other service industry professionals. It's available on Amazon. And honestly, even if you're not a service industry person, pick up a copy to give to your favorite bartender, your favorite waitress. A lot of times people in this industry don't know that they need this information. They're so stuck in a survival mindset that they don't even feel like they have the capacity to approach a lot of this information. If, if this is something that's available to you, makes a great gift. It's available on Amazon. If people want to find out more about me, tippedfinance.com. I'm at Tipped Finance on all the socials. I like to make personal finance really fun and approachable. So I make a lot of memes. I make a lot of fun reels. I do one-on-one coaching for people in the industry or anyone working on a fluctuating income. I do one-on-one coaching. I also give money talks. So if you have a bar, a club, a restaurant that you want your staff to have good basics of personal finance talk, hit me up. Awesome. See, what a great segue. That's the pro that has 47 shows and counting, by the way. She just went right into what we always ask for. So great stuff there. Well, Barbara, I feel like we've had some, we have had some tears because I got a little emotional. You sort of got Mm -hmm. a little emotional. We're not going to call them tears, but maybe they were a little bit. We had some serious, we had some back and forth banter, but now it is time for the ultimate silliness. We do this thing at the end of the show called Senseless. It is these five random questions. Sixth is the wild card. So five are on senses. Sixth is the wild card. And it's just this silly thing we end the show with. But before we do, I just want to give you one kind of last kind of hurrah moment right now. The next time somebody goes to tip, they should do what? Put themselves in the shoes of their worker, the the person waiting on them. You are a miniature boss whenever you're getting the service experience. And so treat them like you would your employees. Be respectful of them as if they were your own kid or your own staff member. I employ I employ lots of people. Paying, I've, I've never missed a payroll. I, I, payroll is so important to me and that's how I feel about tipping. It's, it's so important to me to be able to make sure that those people get their wages. Awesome. I'm guessing you didn't bring a cup and a die. That wasn't part of the agreement. Brought you a brought cup. a cup, I, a I Yeti, but, a but no die. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll roll if you're okay with that. All right. So this is a random thing. I know you like, you know, kind of randomness of life, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a number five. There's proof. What sound for you always makes you smile? The top of a champagne bottle popping. Wow. <laughs> why? I mean, maybe there's some obvious reasons, but maybe why? I mean, I think it's just like the sound of celebration and joy. Like anytime a champagne bottle is is uncorked, it usually represents somebody celebrating something. It usually represents a good time about to be had, a cheer about to be done. I, I think it's it's representative of happiness to me. Barbara, thank you again for coming on. We really appreciate the time you gave us. I just want to say thank you so much. Being better tippers and, and giving us that motivation. And I really appreciate that. Well, thank you so much for what you do. I think it's really important. And this was a lot of fun. Well, guys and gals... Kids and campers alike, that is it. That is all. You know what that sound means. It means it's time to get out of here. Before we go, don't worry. I mean, I take tips. Listen, uh, there's a lot of shoes I would like to be tipped on. Add more stuff to the shoe catalog. Okay, I'm being funny a little bit. I mean it. When I was getting my hair cut just yesterday, and I knew Barbara was coming on, I, I really did have a moment where I had to stop and think. And I didn't even know Barbara. But I felt her voice and her presence, as weird as this might sound to some, in my ear already. How much are you going to tip, Neil? She did a really good job cutting your hair. I mean, look at it. You look like Sonic the Hedgehog. Barbara's not saying that, but that's what I imagine being said. And I gave a little more than I normally do. And part of it because, for me, I started thinking, she did an excellent job. 
This is my way of saying and honoring her work of what she's done. Saying, you did a great job. I want to be generous. I want to show you my gratitude. Now, listen, I know for some of us, money's hard, money's tough, money nobody really likes to talk about. Religion and money, I've heard, and politics are the three triangle pieces we don't ever talk about. But I hope today invites you and encourages you to start having that conversation around tipping. I hope it does. And if it does, let me know. I'd love to know. Let Barbara know as well. But you can let me know on the socials, OPS Podcast Show on your Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And also let us know at OPSPodcast.com. There's a great place you can connect with us there. And before we go, remember, don't forget. It's very important. Very important to remember this. Remember when you walk in other people's shoes, you really do get a different perspective on life. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned till next week when we walk in other people's shoes.